0: Morning. Good morning. You guys have weathered the storm. It has been, I think, Monday, Tuesday were like flash flood days here in Southern California. I saw a video of a guy in San Diego. He was paddle boarding on the freeway. This is actually the, the storm from before, this most recent one, but we had so much rain. I was just under the impression that we'd probably see the same thing here on the 10 freeway. But praise God, it didn't happen. Every drop of rain that we get is really a testament to the mercy and grace of God. When you, go, when you walk outside here, you look at the, the beautiful snow-capped mountains, and you see the blue skies and the green rolling hills. It's just such a blessing that we can, we can live here in the great state of California, and we can live here, and uh, it's just a blessing. So before we do anything, I'm going to open up in a word of prayer this morning. We'll bow our heads. Lord, we're, um, we're here before you this morning, so eager, really desperate is, is the right term, to hear from you this morning, Lord, from your word. Father, there's areas of, of our lives, areas within my own life, in preparation for this sermon, uh, one of the most challenging times of preparation that I've, I've ever been through. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and I pray and ask that in and through the work of your spirit, that you would illuminate any areas of our hearts, the depths and the caverns and the, the, the depths of our hearts, Lord, that there would be things that... Um, in and through the work of your spirit that we would that would come to light, would come to surface. And Father, I ask and pray that you would give us strength to live with an unwavering faith in these last days. Jesus, we love you, we commit our time to you this morning, and we pray these things in your mighty precious name. Amen. Amen. So we've been moving through the book of Daniel over the past five weeks, and it has been quite the journey. We've covered a lot, a lot of territory over the past five weeks. And I love that the title of the series is perfect, because it's almost counterintuitive. The title of the series that we're moving through is How to to Thrive in a Chaotic World. Notice the title doesn't say How to Survive, How to Make It, but How to Thrive in a Chaotic World. And this morning, we're going to be reading about a story of three Jewish men. These are former captives that God had elevated, had raised up to be leaders in the province of Babylon— and we're going to gain deep insight with regard to taking the, the application, taking what these men went through, how they stood for God, how they had an unwavering faith, and how that applies to you and me today in these days that we're living in. We're living in chaotic days. We're living in, in, in difficult days. You don't have to look far to see that, right? It's right in front of us. You don't have to look hard, you don't have to look long, but it's easy to see that the days that we're living in are challenging, and as we go through the passages today, my prayer, and my prayer has been for this church, that we would be emboldened, that we would be inspired, that we would be motivated, that we would really be encouraged to carry an unwavering faith and to live for Christ in these days in which we live in days of chaos. We're going to be unpacking three main points today out of the message. The first point is what it looks like when we carry an unwavering faith and how this applies to walking in obedience to the Word of God and how God's Word, walking in obedience, does not require, does not mandate a response from us. We're called to walk, we're called to live in obedience to the Word of God. That's important. The second point that we're going to be unpacking today is when we carry an unwavering faith, we trust in God's ability and his will for our lives. In the story this morning, we're going to be reading about three men that completely and fully submitted themselves to the will of God. And they also trusted that whether God spared them or whether God decided not to spare them, these men were committed to submitting themselves to the will of God. The third point is when we carry an unwavering faith, we will not bow to the counterfeit gods of this world. We won't do it. Even when the pressure's on, even when the culture says and pushes and propagates this in front of us and we are bombarded by it, we won't bow to it because we carry an unwavering faith. I want to provide a disclaimer to you guys this morning, and I'm thankful that I can, I can bring this forward to you today. I'm going to be transparent with you this morning This has been one of the most gut-wrenching, challenging sermons uh, that I prepared. And the reason it challenged me is because God brought to surface things in my own life, things that needed to be addressed. And I'm going to share a story with you today, later in the message, that is hard for me to share. It's one of my own failures. But I share it with you this morning because I hope and pray that it encourages us to remember what it looks like to stand firm and to stand for God in these days in which we live. Not to fold under the pressure as these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did not fold under the pressure. If you have your Bibles, you can open those to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 16 to verse 18 this morning. We only have three verses today. So we're going to be taking a chunk and we're going to be drilling pretty deep today. So as we go deeper and deeper and deeper in the text, I hope and pray that as we do that this morning, that it resonates and the Holy Spirit really ministers to us through this time. So let me bring you to, up to speed on the beginning of the first 15 verses of Daniel chapter 3. So there's been a lot that's happened. King Nebuchadnezzar, the big guy, the big dog, he, has, he thought it was a great idea to build a statue that was 90 feet tall by, by nine foot wide. I think our ceilings here might be around 15, 17, maybe 20 feet. So imagine an uh, an object that's five stories tall. If you look at your ground level to your ceiling, five stories tall by nine foot wide. He builds this massive gold statue and he calls his officials to the plain of Dura. And he says, we're going to be in this place. And he says, at my command, all the people... Of all nations and all languages are to bow before this gold statue. And at the point where the music starts, the musical instruments start playing, that's your cue. Everyone is to bow before this gold statue. So the music starts, King Nebuchadnezzar has the band kick up, and what happens is everyone, all people, of all all nations and all languages fall to their faces and they begin to worship this golden statue. But there's three men. You guys know them by their their Chaldean or their Babylonian names most primarily, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their, Their Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These men would not bow or bend their knee or worship the golden statue that had been erected in this place. These men, the scripture tells us, that they would not compromise. They would not bend their knee. They would not serve the gold, the gold image, but they would also not serve the the pagan gods of the Babylonian culture. They held themselves to the standard according to the law of God. Well, what happens is you have these Babylonian astrologers. They get wind and they see what's happened. That these three guys that God has providentially elevated into positions of prominent leadership. These were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, former captives. God had raised these men up to be leaders and administrators over the province of Babylon. They had high-ranking positions. And King Nebuchadnezzar gets word that these men had not bowed to the gold image. So he summons the men before him. Daniel chapter 3, verse 14 gives us the interrogation from King Nebuchadnezzar. And he says these words. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? And now comes the ultimatum. Check this out. Now comes the ultimatum, and King Nebuchadnezzar forces and puts this in front of these three Jewish men, and he says this. He says, now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship, you'll be thrown immediately into, bla- into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? We have the privilege of reading the, the Word of God together as a body. If you guys are able to, I'm going to ask that we stand to our feet. I'm going to ask a favor from you this morning. There's only three verses. I'm going to read verse 16 aloud. If you can read verse 17, and I'll finish off with verse 18. How does that sound? Sounds good? All right. So verse 16, it reads, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply to King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this manner. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. So, verse 16, this is the response now. This is the response of these three men after they have been mandated, after they have been given an ultimatum, really to bow before this pagan God. And notice their response here. Their response is key because these men respond to King Nebuchadnezzar with boldness. They have already predetermined, they have already made it up in their minds that they will not compromise. They will not bow to the pagan idol, the pagan image that had been set up in the plain of Dura. And why not? Why were these men so firm in their position? These men knew that they served the one true living God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The awesome thing about it too is their their loyalties were not divided. They were not divided where they said, well, we are going to serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when it's convenient. And then we're going to serve the pagan gods of the world over here when it's convenient. They were firm in their position and then said, we're not going to do it. They had already predetermined this in their minds. These men knew also firsthand experience. They knew what it looked like when the judgment of God was executed upon a nation. These men lived it. These men saw the realities of what it looked like when a nation was disobedient. If you guys have time, Deuteronomy 28, I encourage you when you read through that in the the blessings and the curses given by God before the nation of Israel entered into the promised land about what would take place if they were obedient. What would take place if they were disobedient? God had sent his prophets. God had sent messenger after messenger after messenger to implore the people of Israel to turn from their sin, to turn from their wickedness, to turn from violence, to turn from the sacrificial giving of their children to the hands of Molech, God sent men to do this work. But they they would not repent. They would not turn from their wickedness. When God judges a people, when God judges a nation, it's so important that we don't lose sight of this. God will use instruments. God will use other nations as a vessel, as an instrument of his judgment. He did it in the Old Testament with regard to the nation of Israel, and he also did it with nations that were not covenant nations. God is so patient. But what happens as we read about what happens when a people are given over to their sin? Romans 1 speaks to this. This is a direct correlation to a nation or a people that are under the judgment of God, according to Romans 1. Romans 1 says that there's a giving over. A giving over really is the Lord saying, I am going to allow sin to take its course, and this is an act of judgment upon a people or upon a nation. Heavy stuff. But also out of Isaiah chapter 3, we read about what happens when Jerusalem before it's besieged and what takes place there, what happens is Scripture speaks to a society that's under the profile of the judgment of God. This is heavy. What happens is when there's a, um, when there's a nation or a people under the judgment of God, Scripture says that the noble men, the honorable men, are removed from positions of power. And the, chilt, the, um, the incompetent and the ungodly take those primary positions of authority of leadership. This is not a political statement, but I'm saying this this morning. What do we see with regard to resemblance today in America? When you see what happens when a nation is under the judgment of God, what it looks like. But we pray as the people of Nineveh, or we position ourselves as a people of Nineveh, where we humble ourselves before the Lord, and perhaps, perhaps, The Lord will continue, and he has shown his mercy and his grace, will continue to be long-suffering. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they saw the consequences of a nation that refused to turn back towards God. And check this out, church. They stood firm. They didn't cower. They didn't compromise as they were given the ultimatum. It was a non-negotiable, It was a no-fly zone. Now, when we look at verse 16, the important part of this is they didn't give a defense for their position. We don't need to defend ourselves before you, King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what's so powerful. And this goes to our main point, point number one, is that there's no requirement for us to defend ourselves with regard to our positions to follow the word of God. With unwavering faith— Obedience to God's word, it needs no defense. These men didn't provide, they didn't even offer an argument. They just said, King Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to do it. We're not going to fold. These men stood firm in their positions and think about what was on the line. It wasn't just their new reputation, it wasn't their fancy wardrobe, it wasn't the next promotion, it wasn't that they would be deemed as unpopular in the culture. Their very lives were on the line. When we think about the position that these men stood in, these men, these men, they stood for God. As we look around us and we see what's unfolding in the culture around us, as we see the culture, and even as we are tempted to bow our knees to the counterfeit gods of this world, how will we stand? Will we stand for God? Will we compromise? God's given us his spirit church. He's given us what we need to be able to stand in those desperate, desperate times. I want to read something out of Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. And it reads, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That is precious. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. These things that are immaterial, Paul talks about those things as being idolatrous. I want to read now a quote from a book that I read. And this, I feel like, I know it's a little bit of a lengthy excerpt, Tim Keller wrote an incredible book called Counterfeit Gods. I don't know if anyone's had a chance to read that, but I want to read to you, and this aligns with Scripture, that's why I'm sharing this excerpt, with regard to what an idol is. And this summarizes it perfectly. So when we look at what is an idol, this excerpt, and I quote, states that an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart, your imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion, your energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without even a second thought. It can be family. It can be children. It can be a career. It can be making money or achievement, critical acclaim or saving face. It can be social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence, skill, secure, comfortable, comfortable circumstances, your beauty, your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality, your virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. It's heavy. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we call it codependency, but really it's idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at in your hearts and say, if I just have that thing, then I'll feel that my life has meaning. I'll know I have value, and then I'll feel significant and secure. That hit me like a freight train. This is one of the things that I have been working through in my own life as I've been preparing this message. Idols are things, whether they are material or immaterial material, a house, a car, a checking account, cash flow. These are not bad things in and of themselves. These are blessings from God. But what can happen is these things can be fashioned into an idol. And the things that we serve, that that take precedence over serving Christ, this checked me. And there were things in my own life that surfaced to the top. I want to share a story with you now with regard to something that's very personal with you this morning. As a Christian, I served an idol for years. My idol was my career. I was working for a privately owned company three years before I got married to my wife, then we moved to Beaumont. After we moved, what happened is I had gotten, the Lord provided an opportunity for me to receive a promotion. That promotion, it wrecked me. I became prideful. I became egotistic. I began looking, looking at what Garrett's own hard work achieved. And I began to drive and drive and drive harder and harder and harder to gain the next promotion, to move, to move up on the hierarchy. That's what we're supposed to do, right? According to the, the standards of the culture. And so what happened is as I continued driving and driving and driving and driving, I wasn't fulfilling the obligation as a husband to care for and to love my wife. I had a love affair with work. I was a workaholic. I boasted about putting in the longest days and the hardest days, and I boasted about that as if it was some sort of accolade. And my motive, now check this out, my motive was not pure. But when my wife would talk to me and she would say, "Gary, what's going on? I would say, I would use this excuse I'm building a future for us, and that's not a bad thing. Don't misunderstand me. I'm building a future for us and our family. But that was not the driving force. The driving force was to receive the next pat on the back, the next promotion, the next elevated role within the company, and it continued to happen. And then what happened? I hit a wall. I hit a wall and my empire began to crumble around me. And it was the Lord allowing me to be stripped down of the very things that I had begun to serve. I had taken a blessing, which was work. Work is a privilege, guys. Work is a, such a blessing from the Lord. I took a privilege, and I, a blessing, and I began to form that blessing into an idol. And I began to serve it. I began to worship it, and it was my reason, and it was my purpose, it was my driving force, and my sense of greatest gratification. The Lord allowed me to be stripped down and I came to a point where I, I realized that what I had been doing is I had been serving an idol. And I remember coming home one night and I was on my kitchen floor. I was weeping before the Lord, broken because that idol that I served, it had fully, completely abandoned me. My identity was so wound up in that thing. What had happened? I lost focus on who I belonged to. My purpose, my meaning, my value is rooted and grounded in Christ, not my job. A job is a gift. It's a blessing. But we take on the identity and we take on the striving and we take on all the things that the culture says that we should be doing. But when I look at the reality of it, I came to a point where I realized I needed to repent. And now guess what? I no longer see work in light of being something I serve it's a blessing. It's a blessing. And so there's been a radical transformation, but that is a non-negotiable for me. I cannot go back down that road. That is a a no-fly zone. And that's something that we have to bring ourselves and come to the point in our lives where we understand that. And now, how how do we counter this thing? The Bible says that our flesh, Nothing good comes from it, guys. Nothing good comes from our, I use the analogy of our flesh, is like a sulfur pit. You know those nasty things that produce all, all sorts of beautiful smells and pungent aromas? That's our flesh. It produces nothing good, nothing. But what's important to think about is our flesh, our hearts are an idol factory. How do I combat that? In Psalm 119, verse 11, so precious, short, short psalm. It reads, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word, when it's hidden within our hearts, when it's folded in within us, when we spend time in the word of God, the counterfeit gods of this world lose their appeal. They lose the edge. They lose their attraction. They lose their, their, their enticements. And nothing else compares to Christ. The best The the most beautiful idol on this world, it can't compare. And what happens is when I look at it this way, when I spend time in the word of God, what happens? The affections of my heart are drawn out further and further and further for Christ. It's like a well with no bottom. And we continue to pull from it. And it's in and through the work of God's spirit that this takes place. Verse 17, will continue. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, these are the three men, we want you to know that your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. When we carry an unwavering faith, we trust in God's ability and we trust in God's will. Notice these men, they had surrendered themselves and submitted themselves to the will of God, fully knowing that God, if he chose to save them or not, it wasn't a matter of if he could, it was a matter of if he decided to. They also submitted themselves to the will of God. When we can come to that position in our own lives, where we say, I trust in God's abilities and I trust in his will for my life, We are grounded. We will stand firm. We will not carry an unwavering faith. And these men make it extremely clear that, again, there's no compromise. There's no folding under the pressure. And our last point, uh, unwavering faith does not bow to the fake gods or idols of this world. You guys remember the story, you know it well, out of Luke 4. When Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he's tempted for a 40-day period. I'll read it to you as a refresher. Verse five, Luke chapter four, it reads, the devil led him, this is Jesus, to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all of their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. I will give it to anyone that I want to, or I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it'll be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What was Satan really doing? Let's take a, let's, let's a back. Yeah, amen. He was tempting Jesus. Jesus, check this out over here. Look at, look at all these awesome empires and nations of the world. In a moment's time, he was able to have a visual of that. And notice what Satan was doing. He does the same thing today. He puts out the counterfeit offer. If you bow to me, I'm going to give you an earthly authority. I'm going to give you an earthly splendor, and I will give you all the earthly kingdoms. In an attempt to deter Christ from the redemptive work that was set in place before the foundation of the world to go to the cross, Jesus, here's a shortcut. Here's a shortcut. Come on through. You just got to bow. It's not that big of a deal. But how does Jesus rebuke Satan? He uses scripture. And it's a reminder for us to be able to do the same thing. When Satan comes against us, which he does every single day, we can combat the roaring lion with Scripture. That's a beautiful reminder. He models for us how we're to stand when the heat's on. When the, when the pressure's on, how we really stand. With the uh, conclusion, I'm going to invite the band up here in just about a minute. This morning, we unpacked a story about three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three men who carried really an unwavering faith, three men who stood firm in their position and they did not compromise. This type of faith is so needed just as it was then, as it is today for you and for me. We're going to be entering, and I'll invite the band up now if that's okay. We're going to be entering into a time of worship. This is a precious time. And I want, to, I want to challenge us. I want to encourage us to take a bold step this morning. If there is anything in our lives, and I'm speaking specifically to the body of Christ, if there is anything within our lives that has taken precedence over Christ, that this would be the time, we sang the song earlier, Christ be magnified, even if it puts me through the fire, I rejoice because you're there too. If there's anything this morning that has t- gotten in the way that we would leave that this morning at the foot of the cross. If it's the career, if it's the, the status, whatever it may be, that we would leave it there. And scripture says this, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all of our trespasses. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christ follower, I want to encourage you right now. You're here this morning and there's a high probability that you're tired, that you're exhausted, that you're broken, and that you are absolutely grieved because the purpose and the value and the meaning that you have been searching for in your life isn't there. And it can't be found. And you're right on that. It will not be found. True meaning and true purpose and true value will not be found chasing after the counterfeit gods of this world. I know that firsthand. I've experienced it firsthand. But I come to you this morning to encourage you with this. There is a vacuum. There is a space within the heart of every, uh, every single human soul. There is a vacuum. And the only thing that can fill that vacuum is Christ. That's it. He was the one who went to the cross and who died for our sins the sins of all humanity. The Bible says that he bore our sin in his body on that tree at Calvary. He is, we have been purchased by the blood of Christ. And it didn't just stop there. It didn't end there. That's not the end of the story. The Bible says that he died on that cross and he was removed from that tree and he was buried in a tomb for three days. The story doesn't end there. The Bible says that God's spirit raised him from the dead and that he is seated right now at the right hand of the Father. And he desires to have a relationship with you. He desires that. And so this morning, if you're in a place where you have been searching and seeking, today's the day. I would encourage you after the service, the Bible says Jesus made it clear, repent and believe the gospel. That's the sequence. Repentance means a change of mind with with regard to the way that we see our sin in light of a holy, righteous, just God and to believe the gospel, what I just shared with you today. I want to encourage you after service, if you're ready to take that step, we have people to the right, left, and the right of the stage that want to pray with you. This today, today's the day. If you're ready for it. And if you've seen within your own life that there's no gratification that any of the counterfeit gods of this world can give you like that of Christ. Let's bow our heads and I'll pray. Lord, we love you so much. God, we just bless you. We thank you for the finished work at the cross. And Father, we want to stand firm in our position not to serve anything or anyone else besides you. We love you, Christ. We bless you when we give this time of worship to you. Amen.